Hey, my apologies for last week. I didn't mean to offend anybody in the uh, prayer ministry, but while you were in the uh, upper room, I was distracted, got lost. I was praying in the lower room. So thankfully everything worked out. But I appreciate the Lord's Supper, and I appreciate some of the songs that we sang this morning about sin. And the truth of the matter is that you don't have to live too long in this world to realize how dirty and ugly and decrepit we can become inside our hearts and inside of our souls. It doesn't take long when we step out the front door and we get into the world and we have to deal with co-workers and getting kids to the bus and, and making plans for the weekend and what have you. It doesn't take long to realize that, that we really are, quite honestly, a sorry lot. I'm speaking about myself because I look in the mirror quite a bit. I am still, you know, my children are young enough that I can still go to Chuck E. Cheese and enjoy it. That's not a joke. I enjoy Chuck E. Cheese, all right? And I got a four-year-old that when he sees me come around the corner and we pull into that parking lot, them eyes light up. I mean, they are as big as saucers. And he goes barreling in there, and he wants to play one particular game. Because, you know, a lot of those games he can't play. He's not old enough. He doesn't have the, uh, the, the, the motor skills to do it. Doesn't understand what's going on. But he barrels into this one particular game where there's a pirate sitting in a shark, in a, in, a, in a pirate ship, and he has a fishing pole, and he drops the line down, and he's trying to catch fish. But if you don't hit the fish and reel it up, what you end up getting is something like a tire, tin can, you know, dirty underwear, stuff like that, garbage, trash. It reminds me of a quote from Corey Ten Boom that has stuck with me for a long time, and it's this, and we sung about it, that God takes our sin, and as far as east is from west, which is eternity, and as high as the heavens are above, and as deep as the deepest, darkest places in the oceans of this world, God takes our sin and our transgression, and he shakes it up, and he casts it, he plunges it to the very depths of the ocean floor, and then he hangs a sign right there by the hole that says, no fishing allowed. And I know in my own life, I get the tackle gear out, and I get the pole, and I cast it out in there, and I sit there by my dark, ugly, black, disgusting stench of a hole. And I try to dig it up and reel it up and use it as an excuse. The good news is this, that we're cleansed. By the power of Jesus' blood on the cross, he has reconciled us to himself, and we now have right standing before a high and holy God. And it's not by anything that we've ever said or done. It's simply by grace through faith in Christ Jesus alone, we can enter into the very presence of a high and holy God and worship him and enjoy a wonderful relationship with him. So if you're coming in this morning and you've got your stringer of junk, 
you know, and a fish starts rotting from the head down and you can smell it. If, you, if you're carrying that stringer of sin around this morning and you can smell it and it's sitting in your lap or it's sitting uh, next to you, know this, that you're forgiven. That you've been set free and you just need to take that to the bank and just cast it and turn in the other direction and walk away and celebrate and rejoice in the grace of Jesus Christ and the work that he's done at your life through the cross. So this morning, that was just a little bit of a, a sidebar. I had a professor said, you know, it's okay to chase rabbits once in a while if there's a little meat on the bone. So I hope that there was a little meat on the bone on that one for a couple of you. I know it was for me. But this morning, the title of this morning's message is The Sinking Sun, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 34. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 34. Very familiar passage. It's about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. I want you to go back and rewind a little bit. Jesus assured his disciples. He said, I must go away. I am leaving you. I'm heading in an entirely different direction than you. I have a plan and a will and a purpose for my Father in heaven. And for a moment, it's going to cause me to leave you and head into another direction. And their hearts wavered, and their knees buckled, and they became faint. But Jesus knew their hearts, and he said, listen, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm making some promises. I've got to go away, because if I go away, I'm going to send you the paraclete. I'm going to send you the counselor. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit that's going to guide you and comfort you and walk with you every moment of every day. If I go away, I have another gift for you. I promise that you're going to have significance, that you're going to have passion in your life. You're going, to have per- you're going to have passion and purpose in your life. He made another promise to his disciples. I've got to go away because if I go away, I'm going to equip you and I'm going to build you up to be successful at whatever you put your hands to in accordance to the Father's will. Jesus made some wonderful promises to his disciples, but they were hung up on this. Jesus said, I'm going away. I'm leaving you. And so on that Passover week, on that Passover Friday, when Jesus was strung out up on the cross, that he had been beaten and marred beyond recognition, that they couldn't even recognize that this was the Jesus that they had walked with for three years. This was the same guy that fed 5,000. This was the same guy that, that, that delivered uh, the man filled with legions of demons. This was the same guy that healed the sick, restored sight, gave voice to those that couldn't speak. This was the same Jesus strung out on the cross, marred beyond recognition. And when they saw their Jesus' body draw its last breath, and he cried out to Telestai that it's finished. And the one last push up to fill those lungs with air and take that deep sigh of death into his body. His disciples' worlds were turned upside down. They were broken, shattered, perplexed. They were hurt. And we find two disciples on the road to Emmaus, about seven miles into a 20-mile journey, and they're discussing what they had just witnessed. And these disciples were heartbroken, 
And their heart was filled with pain and sorrow and regret. And to a certain extent, they felt duped by a false prophet. And these men were heading in retreat. And we pick the story up in Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. About seven miles from Jerusalem, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And they talked and they discussed. Now, this wasn't a friendly conversation. This was a knockdown, drag-out brawl. These guys were hot-headed, they were ill-tempered, and they were going back and forth with one another. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and he walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still. Their faces were downcast. And one of them asked him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? Do you not know the things that have happened here in these days? And Jesus quietly says, what things are you referring to? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests in our rules, they handed him over to be sentenced to death. They crucified him. But we had hoped, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early morning, but they didn't find the body. They came and they told us that they had seen a vision from angels who said he was alive. But we don't believe them. We haven't seen this vision. We haven't conversed with Jesus. He's dead and buried. He's long gone. He's moved on. He's gone to the place that we can't go. Then some of our companions went to the tomb. They found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish are you, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken? Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said and all the scriptures concerning himself. This would be three guys walking down the path in the heat of the day, going through the entire Beth Moore Daniel Bible study in one sitting. That is a long day. And that is a long, long, long Bible study. Hey, listen, sidebar. I love Beth Moore. Great student of the Bible, great teacher of the Bible. But you cannot sit down and watch 20 videos and do six months of work in a matter of hours that this conversation took place. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if they were going, he acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, And he began to give it to them. Then, and only then, were their eyes open, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight immediately. And they looked at each other, and one asked the other, Were not our hearts burning 
within us. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and he opened the scriptures to us? And they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them. They assembled together and they said, it's true. The Lord has risen. And he even appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread and gave thanks and offered it to them. What a wonderful story. Let's just back up a little bit in verse 13 through 16 where it says that on that same day that they were in a deep conversation, that they were going over all these things that had happened to Jesus and that's Passover week, but they did not recognize Jesus at this point in time. Here's the principle to take away from these few verses that we're about to talk about, verses 13 through 16, and it says that Jesus has the ability to make sense of all things in life. Jesus and only Jesus has the ability to make sense of all things in life. Their eyes were sealed shut. Their hearts were closed as if they had been welded and sealed forever. They did not recognize this Jesus that they had spent three years with journeying together, communing together, ministering together, doing these great and mighty deeds all throughout the countryside. Jesus had a name and a reputation, and these were his closest followers. Yet on the road to Emmaus, they did not recognize him. Their eyes were sealed and their hearts were were closed. And we have to ask ourselves, at this point in time, why was there no reasonable explanation? Why there was there so much disbelief in the hearts of these disciples? Why could they not see anything good coming from the very death of Jesus, their savior, savior and the great liberator of the world? We have to ask ourselves why these three men or these two men were absolutely blind. And I want to propose to you that they had spent a significant amount of time steeped in religion. I'd like to propose to you that week in and week out, that they had gone to the synagogue, that they had sat under the best Bible scholars of their day, that they had spent time thinking, praying, working through and memorizing the first five books of the Bible of Moses, the Pentateuch. They had poured over the Talmud that the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees had done exposition of the Scripture and an explanation of the Scripture and provided illustrations. These men had sat under that teaching week in and week out. And their thoughts of God and their thoughts about Jesus had been formed and fashioned by the scholars of their day. In fact, it says about these guys, and Jesus referring to them, said this, that the Pharisees were blind men, leading blind men, that eventually that they'd both end up in a deep ditch, and they wouldn't be able to get out of it. This is Jesus' reference to the Bible scholars of his day. In fact, Isaiah says this, all those, all those who make no God idols don't amount to a thing. And what they work so hard at making comes to nothing. Their little puppet gods see nothing and know nothing. We were in a prayer room this morning, and Elaine brought up the little gods, the little G-gods. And if we're truthful about our own lives, we have our own little G-gods. The truth is about me, human nature being sinful and fallen, is this. 
I want to call the shots. At the end of the day, I want to be the master of my domain. At the end of the day, I want to be the architect of my kingdom. I may not know what that looks like. I may not know how to go about building it, but I do know this about myself, that deep down in the recesses of my heart and soul, I want to call the shots and be in control day in and day out. And if that's the truth, I'm going to fashion and mold and make idols that suit me. Why would I want a living God that comes into my life and breathes truth and speaks truth where there's conviction? where there's brokenness, where there's emptiness, there, where there's sorrow, where there's suffering. Why would I want that kind of God invading my life? I'm like the Pharisees. I want to fashion and mold and build up my own gods. And i got to believe to a certain extent that these two gentlemen on the road to Emmaus were thinking about the gods or the little G's that they had fashioned and molded and shaped and were still carrying themselves with them. To a certain extent, they were drawn in by religion, they were infiltrated by falsehoods, and they had bought into the package of the scholars of their day. And they were blind. i got to believe another reason why these gentlemen didn't recognize Jesus is because of the heartfelt, very real, very deep, genuine pain that they experienced. If you've ever lost a loved one, you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever stood by the side of a mother that lost a child, you know that pain. If you've ever stood by a spouse that buried their spouse, you know that pain. Pain comes in all sizes and shapes. If you've ever spent a lot of time in college and took advantage of some of the best internships available to you and plotted your course and had your plan to success only to meet the brick wall and realize there's a ceiling and that you're not wanted And under no circumstances will you ever be able to break through. You know the pain of shattered dreams. You get the picture? These gentlemen had watched their closest friend be crucified. And their hearts were deeply troubled. And their eyes were filled with tears to the extent they could not see the very Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus with them i got to believe another reason why they didn't recognize Jesus is that they just had some preconceived conceptions about who Jesus was. After all, over and over and over again, Jesus had tried to describe or show or reveal himself to these disciples and other people as he truly was. He wanted to seize their attention and reveal himself to them, but these men had misconceptions of who Jesus was. They had a mistaken identity. In fact, the passage tells us that they were looking for a military Messiah. That they wanted Jesus to be the deliverer of the Jewish nation or the Jewish people. They were looking for a 
a, a general or a commander to ride in on a steed, surrounded by the army, to take captive of all those that opposed him, all those that had ridiculed him, all those that had uh, persecuted them, and he wanted Jesus to round them all up and take them out of the picture, and that they could live a wonderful, peaceful, and prosperous life apart from the enemies. And they wanted this kind of deliverer. Any of you ever played with a telescope? Take it, you know, you got the you got the right end to look through it. But of course, out of curiosity, you flip it over and you're looking through the wrong end. And you're looking down through there and you go, boy, that doesn't make sense. How did they use this back in the sailing days when they had to guide themselves by the stars? It's a twisted, distorted picture of reality. And that's what these disciples had. They were looking through the wrong end of his story. They were looking through the short-sightedness. And their one desire and their one goal and their one ambition is that this military Messiah would step and burst forth into this world and would take them out. That he would deliver them up and out. But in fact, they missed a picture because had they looked through the right side of the telescope, if they saw the, raw, the long view of his story, they'd realize that this Messiah was coming not to deliver people from this world, but to deliver them through the world. That this place was an experiment. That if I would create this place as pristine, if I created this place as a perfect place that provided everything that human beings would need for enjoyment and fulfillment and satisfaction and told them to stay away from the tree, that if they would just adhere to the one rule that I gave them, that they would enjoy life. They'd be filled with joy and they would be filled with peace. But we know that Adam and Eve took debate. And from that point forward, it's been nothing but sin, pain, suffering, sorrow, loss, death, and ultimately, for those that know Jesus, contrary to what Time and People magazine may tell you, there's a very real place called hell. And that's what Jesus was after. That was his sight. That was the long view of his story is I'm going to give humanity free will, put them in a garbage heap, and let them live by faith and not by sight. And that they would be victorious, that they'd be more than conquerors, that they would rise up, and that they would find peace and joy, and all these things that the world promised but couldn't deliver on. And you could find all these things through one person, and that person was Jesus Christ. And the disciples had misconceptions about this Jesus because he let these brutal people string him on the cross and take his life. And he lay dead and buried. And rigor mortis set in. And his people around were weeping and crying and filled with sorrow. And their dreams and their hopes had been shattered. For three days... And while these disciples were heading on the road to Emmaus, facing a sunset, 
their hearts pondered this question. Was the Son of God sinking as well? We know that in 8 to 12 hours that there should be a sunrise. We know that. We've lived through sunrise after sunrise after sunrise. Never been troubled by the sunsets before. But the question that was plaguing these two gentlemen's hearts was this. Would the sun, the S-O-N, the one true, pure, and spotless Lamb of God, laying in the tomb, would he sink? Or would he rise? And the little gods and the pain and the misconceptions blinded them to the very fact that Jesus said, I'm going away and I'm going away because I make some promises to you and I'm going to deliver on those promises. And we know Whenever we hear somebody make a promise, there's always a hinge or, 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 or a, a hint of doubt because how many of us have had people make promises to us and fail to deliver on those promises? And we're all mature enough and wise enough to know that if somebody makes a promise to us, that promise is built on the quality of that person's character and the ability of that individual's way of delivering on the promise. And they questioned the very ability of Jesus to deliver on the promise. And when we question Jesus' ability to deliver and to come through, we're filled with doubt and anxiety and fear, and there's no room for hope in our lives. I'm going to give props to our pastor as we move to the second principle. I love uh, Pastor Doug, whenever he asked me to, to come off the bench and, 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 and uh, pitch hit for him, I send him the text and I ask him, please pray through the text. Please feel free to share uh, anything that, that comes to mind in your prayer time. In fact, I encourage you to listen to any sermons that I preached before and, and hold me accountable as iron sharpens iron. Feel free to step into my life and hold me accountable for anything I did say or anything I don't say. And so in our conversations over the the past two weeks, and I gave him the text, this principle comes from our pastor. You know, I like to, maybe I shouldn't say this because I'm up in New England, but I was born in Florida and I kind of got a little bit of the south in me and I like to fish and I like to target practice. And, uh, you know, if you go out and you, you know, go trap or skeet shooting, you know that if you got a 12-gauge shotgun you know if you pick that up you know you can use any 12 gauge shell and put it in there and and so i'm going to take our pastor's 12 gauge shell i'm going to slide it in the barrel i'm going to pull the trigger and let it go forth so i just want to give him uh props for uh uh, his uh friendship and his wisdom and his encouragement and here's the principle god only enters our comfort zone to kick us out of it i didn't have time I told him, I put it up, I'm going to put a big quote like it's Spurgeon. I'm going to give you props. 
I'm going to find a book that we can shove this into. I'm going to give you the credit. Of course, he's humble. He says, I don't want any credit. You just run with it. But I'm going to give him credit. And this comes from our pastor's heart, and I share it with him, is that God only enters our comfort zone to kick us out of it. Look in verses 25 through 27. Then Jesus said to them, you're so thick-headed. You're slow in heart. Why can't you believe all that the prophet said? And then he started at the beginning with the Beth Moore Bible study. He covered Moses. He covered the prophets. He pointed out everything. Today, that's several thousand references to Jesus. So this was quite a lengthy conversation. He pointed to himself and he referred back to all the scriptures that had been written century after century after century about himself. And he laid it out. And later on in verse 32, they look at themselves after dinner and they says, didn't we feel on fire? As he conversed with us on the road, as he opened up scriptures, weren't our hearts set afire that the one true God opened up the word and spoke the prophecies about himself to us? And he walked us through after reference, after reference, after reference, after reference, mile after mile after mile, question after question after question. And they come to the end of the day and they ask themselves, how foolish can we possibly be? We're not our hearts on fire. Has your heart ever been set afire? A word spoken at the right time. Somebody reaching over and holding your hand and praying with you. 2.30 in the morning when you can't sleep. And you open up the Bible from the previous day that you left off. And it just illuminates and comes alive. A phone call, a letter, a card. When was the last time that you can remember that your heart was set afire? That it was burning? You start with the little twigs. You roll up balls and balls of the Hartford current because the only thing that thing's good for is starting fires. <laughs> I got the greatest scam going. I didn't ask for the Hartford current, but they keep delivering this thing day in and day out, and they send me a card, and they say, for pennies, will you just, they're betting, it's one of the oldest newspapers in the, in, in the country, they are just begging for my $50, and I keep calling, saying, no, you know, please stop the delivery, I just got alternative sources for news, I like to go to, I don't have time to read the newspaper, I go to the website, blah, 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 they keep delivering over, I got wads and wads of the Hartford Current if you need it. But back to the issue. A little bit of twigs, a little bit of Hartford Current burns very well. Oxygen. And the spark. And it starts so small and subtle. And there's more smoke than flame. 
Holy Spirit of God working in your life. A lot of smoke, maybe a little flame. Can't feel the heat yet. Can you recognize them? Maybe you know the fire's going in and say, you know, that's not big enough for me yet. I got to go over here and do some things. I got my own to-do list. I want to carry on and, and accomplish some things. But you know the fire, you know the fire's there. You're just not ready to give it proper attention. And so you go and you press about your life. And you take care of the things that are important to you. And then you find yourself in the car listening to that particular song that you didn't plan on listening to. Or that particular preacher comes on the radio Somebody shares a word with you. You open up the scripture, you're reading it in your quiet time or your devotion, and it just starts raging. And it's on fire. And it's like one of these things out west that you are not going to be able to contain this. You don't have enough buckets in the garage and water in the hose to put a ring around this fire. It is all-consuming, it is all-overwhelming, and it will utterly go through everything and anything and anyone that stands in its way. Have you ever smelt the smoke? Have you ever felt the heat? Have you ever come to a place in your life where it was, whoa, whoa, this is not what I was hoping for, this is not what I was anticipating, this is not something that I can control. And these two gentlemen on the road to Emmaus were still in control, and they were in their comfort zones. They had put a boundary around their theology. They put a boundary and a barrier around their eyes. They put a boundary and a barrier around their heart. And no one or nothing at this point in time in their life on this journey, heading in this direction, was going to break through that comfort zone. The walls were high. The walls were stiff. The walls were thick. And nobody and nothing was about to get through those walls. I got a chuckle about how soft we're getting in our country today. I, I get a kick out of this whole idea of the safe place. I don't know about you. I grew up in the military, and if I ever went to my dad and requested a safe place, <laughs> hey, Dad, can you back off? Can you leave me alone? You're offending me. I need a safe place. The whole concept of safe place to me, and I don't want to offend anybody, but the whole idea of the safe place, the retreat, my haven, is utterly absurd. If you buy into this Jesus thing, 
if you let this Jesus story come into your life, and the things that you've read about in Scripture and prayed through, tucked up in the resources of your mind, connect with the Spirit of God. And that journey, the longest journey in this world is from the head to the heart. And when the head and the heart come together, you've got a raging fire. And that's what Jesus is doing. You've learned about me. I've shared the scriptures with you. Now I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and there's going to be a collision and a fire is going to break out and you're never going to be the same. And I'm here to encourage you this morning that if you've been smelling the smoke but you can't see the flame and you can't feel the heat, respond to it. You don't have to know all things at all times. Just simply get down on your knees and get before the Lord and open up the Bible and say, I smell you. I smell something different. Fan it into flame with prayer and scripture. Let it grow. Let it come to you. Let it warm your heart. Let it transform your mind. Let it change you and conform you into the very image of Jesus Christ. Let it go. Because trusting and obeying and walking and being faithful to Jesus Christ is not a safe place. It's not for the weary of heart. It's not for the weak. The world tells you that Jesus is nothing short of a crutch. That there's something wrong with your head. That if you would just get your head screwed on right, you wouldn't need religion. You'd be a self-made, self-actualized individual. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus turns the world upside down. And he says, if you're weak and you're broken and you're empty before me, you are the strongest man and the strongest woman in the room. That if you sacrifice and give everything away for my sake, you're the wealthiest individual in the room. That if you love me more than your mother and your father and your wife and your kids, that's a devotion, that's an intimacy that I can work with. D.L. Moody once said that the world has yet to see a man or a woman that has been completely surrendered and broken to Jesus Christ. And this was a man with a sixth grade education that wanted to teach Sunday school, but they told him no because he was dumb. And he went out with a popcorn machine in the streets, and he popped popcorn and he draw a crowd, and he taught them about the Bible. And after they saw the crowd around the popcorn machine of this uneducated shoe salesman, they decided, the elder says, let's bring them into the church and give them this place. And in a matter of A short period of time, his Sunday school class exploded and went beyond the size of the church. And today we have books and sermons and schools and religious institutions named after a simple, dumb, obedient, 
unschooled shoe salesman that thought about popping corn and teaching the Bible in the streets. And I pause to ask you this question. If Jesus truly set your heart on fire, and if Jesus, by way of the Spirit, came into this church and found no barriers and no obstacles and no walls, we can only begin to imagine how Jesus can use New River to turn not only Manchester upside down, but to the uttermost ends or parts of the world. So don't deny the heat. Don't ignore the smoke. Know that this is a very good thing. In fact, if you could write your own life story, you would pen it just as Jesus has penned it. And you'd want exactly what Jesus died on the cross for you to have. At this time, I'd like to invite our worship team to come forward as we move to a time of invitation. I want us to think about this story. Two men whom Jesus had told beforehand and he had met women at the tomb and he gave them clear directions. Get up. And go to Galilee. See, for the disciples, Galilee was true north. But in fact, they had chosen to go seven miles west. In retreat, heartbroken, and perplexed. They start out blind. Stranger comes upon them. Starts talking, teaching about the Bible, talking about himself. The hearts begin to burn. They walk a little further with this person called Jesus, and Jesus acts as though, I'm going to press on. Our time together is over. And he tested their desire. And these two individuals says, don't go. Stay with us a little longer. At the very least, have supper with us. It wasn't an extraordinary moment in their lives. It was simple. Small table, three people, simple dinner, broke the bread, gave thanks, stretched out the hands... And they saw the scars. 
and they became believers. So much so, in the dark of night on a dangerous road, seven miles off course, stood up and shouted, Let's go. No night at the Hampton Inn, no free breakfast. Get up and go. So our invitation this morning as the worship team begins to play is this. Ask yourself on this faith walk, this faith journey, this road to your Emmaus, can you see actually okay to disbelieve keep asking the questions is he real are his promises true did he deliver on those promises because you can trust him spend some time with him ask him to open the eyes of your heart ears of your faith and you'll find yourself as a believer. Maybe today on your road to Emmaus you can smell the smoke. You sense the heat. You hear the call to personal responsibility. I want to come over here. I want to spend some time with you. I want to fan this thing into a flame. Kind of Moses with the burning bush. Maybe you've been ignoring that opportunity for some time now. I want to encourage you today to let the Spirit of God fan that into flame. To capture the wonder and the curiosity of God that I'm no longer content with him as a little God. I'm no longer content with the gods that I've made on my own. I want something more. I want to explore the burning in my heart and in my soul. Maybe you're further down along the road in the road to Emmaus and you're a believer. You've gotten up and you've gone. As far as you're concerned, you're heading to true north. You're heading in the right direction. But it doesn't stop there. Because it's not good news until you share it. And maybe the next step or the redirection or the pivot in your life is this. not only believe the message I need to start living the message and I gotta share this message because I can't contain it it's not just for me 
and the stakes are far too high to be silenced. Father, we're so grateful and thankful for the opportunity to worship you. We're thankful for the feeble attempts of bringing glory and honor and praise and worship to your name. But we pray that you've been here. We pray that you've worked in our hearts. And we pray that your spirit would give us the hope and the courage to get up and to go. So, Father, we offer our lives and we offer this altar to you. And we pray that we would do business with you, that we would be open and honest and willing to believe and respond and trust and obey. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.